Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is the Great Big History Podcast. We continue our History 102, uh, 1500 to 2000 series. In this episode, we do Yuan, Ming, Qing, China. A complicated story of trauma, renewal, independence, conquest, and rebirth. So we start with Genghis Khan, Temujin, his empire at his death in 1227. He has conquered China north of the Yellow River, united the Mongolian, Turkish, and Tunistic speakers of, of the Asian steppe. This is the last ride of the nomads. He has invaded northern China, crushed the Manchu rulers of Jin, the Jin dynasty, with the help of Han engineers, see, northern China was at this point owned by foreigners, uh, another nomadic group called the Manchus, which were called the Jin. He used Chinese engineers to help him obliterate northern China. He then went west to obliterate the Islamic caliphates, burning up the Silk Road cities as he, as he went. Genghis Khan's sons and grandsons continued to expand the empire, conquering Russia, Poland, Hungary, Song China, that's China south of the Yellow River, uh, Tibet, Persia, Baghdad, Turkish Anatolia, and then the grandsons broke the empire into four parts. If you're watching the video, you could see these four massive parts, and then those parts went to war against each other. Some trying to remain independent, some trying to unite and recreate Genghis Khan's empire, but the grandsons broke up the empire and the successor states will then fight each other for the next several hundred years. The part we're going to talk about is Mongol Yuan China. This is huge China. But this China is really part of Mongolia. And that's a humiliation. That the, the capital, despite the emperor being a Mongol and being in, in China is really more interested in controlling Mongolia. It's a, this is a humiliation. China should not be run by someone else. Now the Mongols are going to connect China to the wider world. You know this through Marco Polo. They're going to bring in people and knowledge and diversity, Islam and Christianity and the Persians. Why? Because they can't trust the, the Han to work for them. Why? Because they were terrible to them. When they conquered China, they murdered 30 million people. So they're bringing in, they are perfectly willing to bring in non-Han Chinese to help them run the show. They're in charge, and the people underneath them helping to run the government are going to be a diverse group of people who are a minority in China and thus loyal to the Mongols. Gunpowder heads to the Middle East. And that's going to be important for the Turks and Tamerlane and the Mughals. We're going to get our middle, medieval or early modern gunpowder kingdoms of Asia because of this. So people and knowledge is coming east. Gunpowder and other technologies are going west. The Yuan try to reopen the Silk Road to make money. This is no tariffs. They want to connect. And there's a brief period where there is peace between the various different grandson groups, especially between the Middle East and uh, Yuan, 
China, and that allows Marco Polo to literally walk to China, to walk across the Middle East, Central Asia, all the way to Eastern China. Educated Muslim slaves are brought east. There are no tariffs. It's a re... The Mongols realized that to make money, they needed to recreate the Silk Road. The problem is, is that new conquerors, new the grandsons, grandsons are going to blow all that up again. In Yuan, China, the Mongols are the elite of society. This is a humiliation for the Han, of course. And the Mongols are going to use Muslim eunuchs to help run their government. This creates, but but the Mongols are minority, and their culture is not strong. They are not an urban people. They are nomadic people, and so we get what is Sinicization. The Mongols become Chinese in dress, religion, and language. Take a look at our pictures. We have Genghis Khan, the universal ruler, right? Looks like Mongolian prince, Mongolian king. We have his grandson Kublai Khan the ruler of change, right? And then we have the last emperor, Mongol emperor of the Yuan, Taghan Timur, whose name means Iron Pot. Does that inspire you? Is that the conqueror of the world? And look at his dress. Look how different he is. He looks Chinese. He has been decked out in all of these Chinese robes and the glistening and the gems and that he doesn't look like Genghis Khan or Kluba Khan at all. He's painted. He's got makeup on. His headdress is not the headdress of one who rides a horse. And his name is not the universal ruler or the ruler of change, but his name is Iron Pot. Meaning, you know, he eats. He's settled. He eats from an iron pot. He's settled. He likes to live in civilization. He's not one of the horse lords of the Mongols. By 1360s, the Yuan are falling apart. So within basically 100 years or so, we got the Mongol Wars, we got the Silk Road cities erect, the income is drying up, the access to Persian scholars stops, the Mongols are increasingly looking Chinese or Han Chinese, they are not, they are no longer feared the way they were when they first arrived. And then there's a series of natural disasters, poor rulers, and you lose the mandate of heaven. The Chinese farmers get mad at the government, who are not acting Confucian, which makes total sense because they are Mongolian. Even though they talk Confucian, they, they, you, every government of China is going to want to use Confucianism a little bit, but they're not Confucian. You can't murder 30 million people and then claim you're Confucian. And so there's not this connection between the empire, the emperor, and his peasants. And so the Chinese farmers are mad at the government. You're not helping us. And you're foreigners. And you're the hated foreigners. And you're not even that tough anymore. So what happens? Ming China. A revolt of the Han peasantry. From 1368 to 1644, a successful, you know, last almost 300 years, successful Chinese Empire. Hung Wu is a peasant rebel, a Buddhist monk who leads a peasant revolt. So this is not a revolt of the elite. This is not a revolt of the Mandarin class. This is a revolt of the farming class. 
They'll take over Nanjing, the southern capital, in 1356. They will organize a government. He will organize a government, create this army of Han to overthrow, push out the hated foreigners, the, the Mongols, and then invades the north and then win. That's how declined the Yuan dynasty had become, the Mongols had become. They couldn't even defeat Chinese peasants, who a hundred years earlier, they ran over. They massacred. They committed genocidal murder. A hundred years later, they're getting pushed out. This is the first time southern China conquers northern China. They kick out the Mongols but are afraid the Mongols will return. So Hong Wu creates the Ming, which is known as Brilliant China. It is China for the Han Chinese. It is a response to the trauma of the conquest by these outside foreigners. The answer is to keep them out. So Ming government has a problem. It has a fight from the very beginning over who will represent the government. The Muslims who worked for the Mongols. The Muslim eunuchs. They stayed. They were, they were working for the government. So they stayed. As the Mongols fled, they stayed. What's the problem with them? Well, they're not Han. They're foreigners. They're eunuchs. They have no children. Which means... They should be loyal to the government, but it's also they're disposable because you, you can get rid of them without worrying about pissing off a, a tribe or a village or a province. But, so you go, oh, well, why don't you just murder all of them? They worked for the Mongols. Well, they're cosmopolitan. They're worldly. They're connected. You need these people if you want to be a global superpower. You need these people if you want to maintain your independence if the Mongols ever come back. These are the people who know how to run China, but run modern China. Now, modern means 1400 China. You know, early modern Europe, early modern world China. But you needed these people. They're tied to the other kingdoms in the Middle East, in India, through trade, through knowledge, through kinship. You need these people. They're more cosmopolitan. They're more worldly. They're more connected. But there's the Han Confucian elite, who will also be called Mandarins, which is a different, it's not an ethnic group. The Mandarins are a job. But they were the traditional elite pre-Mongols. And they're humiliated and traumatized. They're the people who suffered when the Mongols came in. Because they were in charge. So the Mongols attacked them, persecuted them, murdered them, and then belittled them to local, provincial jobs. These are educated people, but they're not worldly. They're educated in the Han classics, especially Confucianism. But these are not people who want, who, who combine the Islamic, Persian, Arab, uh, Indian... Buddhist aesthetic, though they have they'll have some Buddhist aesthetic, I should say. That's not fair. So, but the the Central and West Asian, South Asian, and Southwest Asian cultural connections they don't have them. They are Chinese and happy to be Chinese. 
but they are also the trusted connection between the emperor and the people. So you need them if you want to run a united China. They're like the priests in Europe. You need them because they are your educated elite at the local level. So if you want to control the people, tax them, give them laws, tell them what to do, organize them, hire them into the military, you need the Han Confucian elite. But if you want to be a global superpower, you need the Muslim eunuchs. And these two groups do not like each other. So Ming government from the very beginning has a problem. We see this tension in the voyages of exploration of Zheng Ho, which is spelled in English Z-H-E-N-G, and his last name H-E, Zheng Ho. These are 30 years of exploration from 1405 to 1433. These are the first Chinese naval expeditions into the Indian Ocean. This is impressive. Han China is not China is not staying in China. It's not staying in the East China Sea. It is going to go around the world. These are diplomatic missions. These aren't trade missions per se. This is not trying to replace the Silk Road. This is an announcement to the other great empires that the Ming now run China, not the Mongols. It's China and the Mongols got divorced and the Ming are sending out like little letters that they're uh, two different addresses now. Thank you. The third emperor, the Yongle emperor, is a new emperor. He usurped from his nephew. He, he took over from his nephew, which is not so nice. And he himself is going to lead armies to push the Mongols out from the northwest. He's going to push them farther out than where they are. He's going to lead armies. But the idea of this is to tell other groups the Ming now run China. If you want to trade with China, you got to go through the Ming. you got to go through the Yongle Emperor. Not to the Mongols. The Mongols are out. The Mongols are what was. The Ming are what is. This is a triumph of the Muslim faction. First, Zhang Ho is a seven-foot-tall Persian eunuch. He embodies literally the multiculturalism, the worldliness of the Persian um, Central Asian Muslim elite, eunuch elite. This connects China to the Muslim world, to Indonesia, to Bengal, to East Africa. The discoveries wow people. He brings back a giraffe. He brings back giraffes that are seen as this connection between heaven and earth. They, are, they literally t- combine the sky and the earth. The exploration missions show wherever they go, the Ming are rich, powerful, and well-led. And can do see and land operations at the same time. Remember, as these giant explorations, and we're going to talk about how big they are in a moment, are going on, the Yongle Emperor is leading massive Han armies into the nomadic horse lands. 
in the north and the northwest to push the Mongols further back, to decisively defeat them, to protect Ming China. What about this fleet? Well, you got to see this fleet. I have a picture that is from a, um, a Chinese mall where they compare Columbus's Santa Maria to one of Zheng He's uh, treasure, treasure ships. The fleet is 300 ships. Remember, Columbus had three, and only one gets back. He, Zheng He has 300 ships, including 60 treasure ships. These are 400 feet long, 160 feet wide. They are five times the side of Columbus's Santa Maria. 30,000 men, merchants, sailors, marines. So they're prepared for battle, but also scientists and poets and writers. So they could describe what they see. They can learn about the worlds that they're touching. They had specialized ships. Tender ships, food ships, horse ships, medical ships. That is a very modern aircraft carrier fleet. That's how an aircraft carrier fleet works. An aircraft carrier does not go around the world by itself. It goes with all these other specialized ships to protect it, to help it, to do things. So this is a modern fleet with modern fleet tactics sailing the world in a world that is just Japanese pirates, Indonesian pirates, Muslim pirates, a ship, two ships, maybe a couple of ships, you know, if they group up together. And suddenly, a fleet shows up. We'll just we'll push everything aside. This fleet could easily have explored the world's ocean. Had, could easily have discovered America. But why? China had the products the world wanted. The world would come to China. Why go to the world? Yuan Mongols were still on the loose in northwest China. And want China back? Tamerlane is in Persia, ripping up Central Asia, and wants China back to recreate Genghis Khan's empire. So there's land-based problems. So the Ming emperor could have done all of these things, but why? Why spend the money? The result is the Ming will not conquer the world. Why? Zheng He's expeditions are not moneymakers. They're too expensive for private companies to recreate. So there's no interest from the emperor after, you, after the Yongle emperor dies, and we'll talk about that in a second, and especially after Zheng He dies, but it's too expensive for private companies to build the ships, build their fleets, sail out of the southern Chinese ports, go to the Indian Ocean, go to East Africa, recreate the Silk Road by sea. And why go? Other people will come to China and buy Chinese goods. So why go to them to sell Chinese goods? After the Yongle Emperor's death and the death of Zheng He, Confucian Han Mandarins take over the court. The Muslims are eliminated essentially from key government roles. Why? Because they're identified with the Mongols. They're identified with Tamerlane. They're identified with, they're not Chinese. They're foreigners. And the Ming, in the end, 
becomes a China for the Chinese, which means there's not a lot of room for non-Chinese. Now, the Yongle successors are mostly useless. That's the other thing. So they couldn't have conquered the world even if they wanted to because most of them are just bad at it. In 1449, at the Battle of Tumu, the emperor is captured. The emperor is captured. Do you know how disastrous that is? How humiliating that is? To be captured? That would not happen to the Yongle. Or Hongwu. I mean, come on. The idea of Kublai Khan getting captured? I mean, no. Emperors don't get captured. And that, of course, freezes government. Like, what happens? It puts government in crisis. It creates a succession conflict. And so, it's it's one of those weird things that there are just not great successors after the Yungle. And Yungle is the third. We got 300 years. We got another 200 years to go of just kind of not very good emperors. So what is the solution? The solution is to build walls, actual and metaphorical. The idea is China will be self-sufficient. It will stick to itself. It will build the great wall. The great Now there are other, there's great there's walls keeping out the nomads or trying to keep out the nomads that go all the way back in Chinese history. As long as there has been a, what we would call a China, quote unquote, there has been somebody trying to build a wall to keep the Mongols, the Turks, the Manchus, the Jin, keep them out. The modern Great Wall, the Great Wall you want to go visit is built by the Ming. They will also build the Forbidden City in Beijing which is a fortress within Beijing. The idea being if the Mongols attack Beijing and capture Beijing, that the government can still be safe and wait for an army from the south to come and rescue it by holding up within this fortress within Beijing. But what these walls do, and in the end they don't work. You have to understand that. The, the Qing, and we're going to go back, come right through. They don't work. Walls never work. Armies work. Laws work. Trade works. But never walls. There's no place where the walls, if keep out, determined people. But what the wall does is it symbolizes either actual, it actually isolates China from the West. Because it really, with the, with the building of the Great Wall, you're effectively ending the Silk Road going West land trade into Central Asia. And the Forbidden City isolates the emperor from the people. There are literal gates keeping the people from seeing the emperor, from asking the emperor for help, for engaging with the emperor. Which is what an emperor is supposed to do. Then there's the Haijing. Trade by sea is made illegal. Basically, it says, no, 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 don't go out. Stay home. You're not allowed to trade by sea. Well, what that did was it made law-abiding Chinese, Han Chinese, stay home. 
So what happened is the black market took over. And when the black market take, took over, in came Japanese pirates. And basically Japanese pirates took over the sea, which made seagoing trade more dangerous, more expensive, which equaled less trade. So even the, even the people who were doing the black market would pull back on the black market because it was too dangerous because of Japanese pirates. This isolation of China is followed by Korea, which is an ally to the Ming and will become known as the Hermit Kingdom. Basically, keep out foreigners and Tokugawa Japan. Now, that isolation never applies to Japanese pirates, by the way, Japanese naval pirates. They're always out there being Japanese naval pirates, wrecking things, being Japanese pirates. But the policy of Tokugawa Japan was also keep out foreigners. Why? Well, they had been abused by the Ming and they had been invaded they not abused by the Ming, though they had been invaded by the Mongols, excuse me. They had been invaded by the Mongols with the help of China and Korea. So they're not so happy about that. Um, Tokugawa Japan itself was broken up into lots of little fiefdoms that all had to be united or at least kept from one dukedom becoming more powerful than the others and trying to usurp the Tokugawa. And so you have this isolation. As the Ming China begins to fall apart, isolated leaders, poor government, and angry people lead to Qing and Manchu China from 1644 to 1912. This is the triumph of the northern barbarians. The irony of trying to keep out the Mongolians allowed the Manchus to invade and conquer China. So the very thing the Ming were trying to prevent from happening actually happens. And you can see by the map, we're going to have massive China, huge China, China that's going to go all the way to the Middle East, all the way to Afghanistan, and all the way to the Russian forests, and all the way to the Vietnamese jungles, the Burmese jungles. Like, this is China at its largest. The Ming were falling apart, which started peasant rebellions. Remember, the Ming was started by peasant rebellions. They didn't suddenly become peaceful just because. So you have the Ming are falling apart, which leads to peasant rebellions. And the Ming are... But the peasant rebellions are not tough enough to defeat the Ming armies. The Ming now have gunpowder, by the way. So the peasants don't. They, the Ming have a technological advantage. To overcome that technological advantage, the peasants invite the Manchu, also known as the Jin. Remember, the Jin were the conquerors of northern China before the Mongols showed up. Well, they invite these nomads across the Great Wall to invade. And while the Ming were worried about the Mongols, this whole new enemy arose. The Manchus would actually conquer the Mongols. And, you, and then conquer the Islamic state in the far west. Basically, the Manchus are going to unite all the nomadic peoples. The exact thing that the Ming didn't want to happen. But because they built the Great Wall, that becomes a border. And so beyond that border, the Manchus could just unite everybody, which is exactly what they did. 
the Manchus then incorporated defeated peoples, the Mongolians, or the Han Chinese. The Chinese had heavy guns. They had muskets. They had this new technology and power the Manchus don't have. The Manchus are perfectly willing, in a way Genghis Khan was, to hire people who had skills they didn't have. And in 1644, victory. The conquest of Beijing. They murder, <laughs> then they turn around and murder the Han peasant, quote, allies. The Han are like, thanks, you can leave now. And the Manchus are like, uh, no, we won. And then they begin the conquest of southern China. Defeat. Chinese men have to shave their heads and wear braids as a sign of submission. China is defeated by the Manchus. And so the popular American version, the, the Chinese, the Han Chinese who show up in America, are the men who are this, are the Chinese men who are defeated by the Manchus. The shaved head, the long braid, becomes a stereotype of the, quote, coolie, which is a racist word, excuse me, but of the, of the, of the railroad worker, of the Chinese peasant, of the Chinese worker in the West. Well, that, that was all a sign of submission, that they had been defeated. Conquest. The Manchus will conquer China proper. Tibet. Central Asian nomads all the way to Afghanistan and northern Korea. They are the largest, most, most ethnically diverse version of China. They have 400 million people in it. It's as big as Europe. They even defeated Russia in Central Asia. They are bigger than the Mongol Yuan China. Might they be Genghis Khan's successor? Might they conquer the Middle East? Maybe even like Tamerlane, northern India? And they have Confucianism, unlike the Yuan, who talked about Confucianism but didn't live it. The Qin actually respect the traditional Chinese culture and hierarchy. They will not make the same mistake the Mongols do. They do not import large numbers of Persians to help run their government or other foreigners to help run their government. They will work within the traditional Chinese cultural hierarchy. They are at the top of it. But as you go down that hierarchy, it looks more and more and more Chinese. This is something the Mandarins can respect, especially if the Manchus will Sinoize, will become Chinese as time goes on. Positives. And we see this at the height with the uh, Chenlong Emperor. From 1711 to 1799. Look at how long. He's emperor, 80 years. Huge investment in art, in literature. He has an archival encyclopedia, thousands of books. He has the Four Treasuries Project. He has a great library. They are so successful, they cancel taxes. That is very Confucian. That is showing... The, the connection between emperor and people. Lots of internal trade, strong external trade, especially in spices, silk, tea, luxury items like porcelain. There's stability. They don't, they, the Manchus before conquering China had conquered all the nomads. The Turks, the Mongols, well, the, the Turks of Central Asia, the Mongols, the people all the way to the Middle East. So they had no one to worry about. They had peaceful borders, no invasions. 
They solved the Mongol successor problem by defeating them. They solved the Confucian elite problem by hiring them. They solved the Han peasant problem by being active Confucian leaders. This looks good. If you want to conquer the world, this is a good start. They solved the problems of running China that plagued the Ming, that plagued the Yuan. But there's problems. And the first is, well, decadence. There are no wars. And there's lots of money, which means after Chenglong, there is lots of lazy emperors. There's no need to conquer the world. The Middle East is too far away. The Spanish are bringing American silver to China. The Europeans are starting to show up and buy stuff. Like, why should we conquer the world? We don't have to. The world is coming to us. They still don't have a navy. The Manchus are not naval people. They're horse people from the north. They're nomads who are now learning to settle. They're not naval people. So they're never able to control the seas. They don't invest the way the Ming did in this navy that could have swept aside Japanese pirates. And so what that allows is Japanese pirates to continue to rule the seas, and so sea trade was just too expensive. So if other people want to come to China and brave the Japanese pirates, so be it. Indonesian merchants, Bengali merchants, Europeans, sure. But why should Chinese go? It's expensive. The insurance alone. There's also the problem of the agriculture. Not that agriculture was a problem, but that was the major form of the economy. We're still talking pre-industrial. And so farm work was the major form, which, okay, is a problem if you don't have a lot of people, because then you need to be efficient. China has 400 million people, which means conservative economics. There's no need for more technology. There's no need for science. There's no need to figure out more efficiencies using machines and engines. You just add more people. The bigger the farm, the bigger the business, you just add more workers. They have the labor. And this is a way of if people have jobs, they won't revolt. But what that does is limit innovation because why would you invent a machine that will eliminate people's jobs when it's cheaper just to hire more people? Labor is cheap. So the best and the brightest would rather own land than businesses. They'd rather be lords, landlords, than entrepreneurs. This is very traditional. But what it means is the economy is not set up well for the Industrial Revolution. Its, simp its size, its size and success is actually working against it. Europe, on the other hand, England, is poor compared to China, compared to India. And it's one reason why they will have an industrial revolution. To make up for the fact that there's so much poverty. That they don't have enough people. That they're too small. So they need machines to do the work. There's also Confucianism. Now we talk about Confucianism is a positive. It connects the emperor to the people. It makes the people loyal. It makes the emperors connected. It makes them efficient. But it's also conservative. There's no innovation, especially at the local level. Everyone has their job. Everyone has their role. So the emperor is good. The Manchus are good. Things are stable. Why change? And Confucianism says, you shouldn't. 
Things are good. Things are the way they're supposed to be. There's no chaos. This is, you know, very, it's different than Hobbes, but Hobbes is going to talk about the same thing. You don't, things are fine the way they are. You don't need to change. Change could be bad, right? Change was the yuan. That was bad. Change was the the collapse of the Ming. That was bad, right? Things are good now. Things are stable. We had the Chenlong Emperor. He he ruled eighty plus years. Things are stable. Why why screw around with things? Why change? You will see this over and over and over again. We see this right now with climate change. As I make this video, it's hundred and ten degrees in Seattle which is a place that's usually 65 degrees. Mount Rainier is 75 degrees at 10,000 feet. The earth is cooking. We have to do something, but a large percentage of the world says, it's fine, it's hot, put on the air conditioner. Why should I change? Boomers are going to be dead. That's literally the attitude of some of, Donald, Donald, President Trump said that. Like, I, why do I care? I'll be dead. It won't matter. When you say the world in 2100, a lot of Americans look at that and go, eh, I don't care. I'll be dead. I'll be dead a long time by 2100. That's the world of my grandchildren. They'll figure it out by then. Why should I change? Why should I have to pay higher taxes? Why should I have less air conditioning? Why should I have, why should my life have to change? It's good. My life is good. And we're going to run into this again and again and again. So that conservatism, and conservatism is an of itself nothing bad. But a lot of times it, it stifles change that leads to bad things. Because while one is conservative, other people are innovating. Other people are changing. Other liberal, this is a class, and you have to understand this. We haven't yet talked about conservatism and liberalism and progressivism and all this other stuff. But this is a class where evolution wins. This is a class where the more you change, the more you stay ahead. Remember the idea of those who do not advance go back and those who go back go under? That's what the Ming are. They're not advancing. They're not changing. They're not, ev they're not evolving. They're sitting on their laurels. They're growing. The emperors grow decadent because they have plenty of money and nothing to do. And so we will see this again and again and again. How the hungry upstart will take over. Literally, the Europeans will conquer the world. But they are poorer than India. They are poorer than China. They shouldn't conquer the world. They start from a worse position. And so what happens? The Europeans arrive with guns and ships. And so the balance shifts. They arrive with guns and ships and start blowing stuff up, taking over the trade. And the Qing dynasty will eventually collapse. It's a long hard road where lots of reformers try to save the Qing or at least save China from the Europeans. 
and none of them in the end are successful enough. Until essentially communist China, Mao. And really, even Mao isn't able to do it. Mao's a disaster. I'm sorry, but Mao, millions, tens of millions of people will die under Mao. It's really Deng Xiaoping and the modern liberalization since 1980 that will make China into this, the power it is today, superpower it is today, the economic power it is today. Perhaps the cultural power of the future, maybe a military power of the future. But that really gets started after 1980. So that's what we'll, and we will talk about that. And you can say, that's false. I don't believe you. I think you're, you're full of it. And that's fair. And, but that's in part three. We will get there in part three. But we will talk about the collapse of the Qing in early part two when we do imperialism. Then we'll talk about the Communist Party and the rise of Mao and whether or not Mao is successful. And then the economic takeoff after 1980 of China in part three. So if you're if you're here for our discussion of China, we will talk about China in every section of this course. They are a major player in the game. So be safe. Take care. See you soon.